CEE Central Europe Explained An IDM podcast series powered by Erste Group Episode 28 Missed Opportunity COVID-19 Pandemic as a Throwback to the National Individualism As already during the crisis before the COVID-19 pandemic proved itself to be a fertile ground for nationalist and protectionist political forces through the restoration of national territorial borders through the so-called vaccine nationalism and vaccine diplomacy the nation states have established themselves as active competitive managers of the crisis acting in opposition to a coordinated inclusive pan-european approach by bringing national policies to the forefront the overall project of european integration has once again suffered in a fundamental way what were the reasons for this national individualism and can such policies be prevented in future crises how long will it take to heal the damages on the perception of european cooperation or rather non cooperation Welcome to the next episode of CEE, Central Europe Explained, IDM podcast series. Here is Daniel Martinek, Research Associate at IDM, and I'm very glad to have with me today a distinguished guest, Ms. Anna Durnova, Professor of Political Sociology at the Department of Sociology of the University of Vienna, whose research focus lies, among others, on interface between expertise, culture and politics, or social polarization in times of crisis. Dear Ms. Durnova, thank you for accepting our invitation. Thank you very much for having me. Today we are going to focus on quite complex topic related to the COVID-19 pandemic, but also to the post-pandemic times, all under the title Missed Opportunity, COVID-19 pandemic as a throwback to the national individualism. By now everyone knows from her his experience and i think no one would deny that the covid-19 pandemic is not only a health crisis but also it is economic political or societal crisis the last two aspects i just mentioned are the ones i would like to discuss with you today uh, it is certainly difficult to elaborate these topics such as society and politics during health crisis societal polarization and divisions within the society political decision making and duration between society and politics but let's try our best today and who else actually could address these topics better than you as a researcher dealing with societies relations between citizens and institutions role of emotions in the public discourse and so forth so for the beginning of our talk let us also start with another beginning and with that i mean with the first months of the pandemic we have witnessed kind of competition amongst the nation states in relation how they were uh, coping with the crisis coping with the spread of the virus um, the so called vaccine diplomacy or vaccine nationalism played an also important role um during the current months we can see that uh, the states are being compared according to the vaccination rate and so on so my question would be 
uh, how did you experience the pandemic so far? Uh, maybe both from your personal perspective, but also from the point of view of your research. Okay, this is a very big question. So I might start by cutting it down into several levels. And I think if you start by the personal level, it is important to highlight that we are um, talking about something which is very individualized. Individuals, first of all, in terms of how have I experienced the pandemic? My feelings, my anxieties, my successes and failures during these past two years are mine and are felt by me. And I think everyone and each of us feels that it's difficult to get a recognition from others and to get an understanding of others what's going on here. So this is the first level of individualization. With that goes, um, and a very important narrative that I would dare to say is present in all the countries around the Western part or global north, which is that uh, the risk to deal with during this pandemic and the way we deal with this pandemic has been highly individualized as a way that it is on each of us to combat the virus. It is on each of us to minimize the risk of getting infected, which has created a sort of um, societies with individuals that take care of themselves. And that's it. With that, I have in mind all the sorts of individualized campaigns. You should do something. You can do something. You need to endure something rather than using the us and using the collective body and the collective cooperation and solidarity. This has been part of the pandemic. However, I would argue that this has been um, a side narrative, something which was which was either not so much present or it was once again saying you need to have solidarity with the others. It was uh, once again individualized. This brings me to the third and maybe most important level, which is that all these feelings and capacities to be so to feel solidarity with the others, to cooperate with the others, um, they have been highlighted as individual capacities without taking into account the societal factors that might make some of us less anxious because, for example, we have more money, we have more resources. We live in states that uh, support um, quick and fast delivery of vaccines. So our anxiety is not only our individual capacity, but it is also driven and supported in a way by the structural factors. We have been living through many and many lockdowns. And I think that everyone would agree that these lockdowns are very different if you look at small houses or even small flats without a balcony. And if you look at uh, larger spaces with many rooms in there with green spaces that are private spaces and that still you could frequent, although we've been in a lockdown. So once again, we see that these feelings about the pandemic that we highlight so much as individual feelings, as our feelings, as something we feel and we are able to feel, are very much interrelated in our economic conditions and cultural conditions. So to sum that up, I think the problem sort of in this pandemic is that this individual has been so much highlighted. We have forgotten about society. We have forgotten about the structural factors that make us human beings that are anxious, happy, or hopeful. And because we have done that, it has created a bigger space for some other 
even radical narratives. Because when people are feeling anxious and when there is no one to support them in their anxiety, they do radical things. This is something which we've learned from social movements and societal polarization, that polarization come forward when uh, citizens are not listened to, are not, uh, their feelings are not acknowledged, and then they go towards those people or those persons that seem to acknowledge their feelings. And then it's rather secondary whether this is really happening it is more about this feeling of having at least some connection. It's really interesting. Uh, if we would go now from this individual level with coping with the crisis, uh, if we go a little bit up from our individual emotions or our feelings when it comes to the others, uh, our perception of solidarity, uh, how would you assess the role of the nation states if we speak about European nation states uh, during the pandemic, do you think is there still this narrative among the population, this narrative of nation state, which is protecting us, which is keeping our security, which, who is doing our best for our well-being in general? Do you think this narrative was there during the pandemic and how it affected maybe the decision-making uh, on the national level, but maybe also on the local level? I think that the last part of your, your question touches to the heart of the problem, which is the local level of the administration. Okay, if we get back to um, spring 2020, we've seen the return of the politics as we knew it in the 19th century or in the early 20th century, which is strong state and strong local administration that closes the borders, sometimes even um, illegally sort of, because it deprives its citizen from going abroad, as was the case, for example, of the Czech administration that did not allow Czech citizens to leave the country. We have in states like these in crisis, we have this return of very strong local and localized, very strong and localized administration. We've seen that in Central and Eastern Europe, but we've seen that also in Western Europe. We've seen that in Southern parts of Western Europe, such as in Italy and Spain, where we had a large set of tools in place as to regulate who can leave the house for how many hours and how many kilometers far away from that house. So this is an extreme case, but on the conceptual level, it shows us the effectivity of a local and strong administration. And for crisis, this is what we need. So at the beginning, we sort of believed that these localized, nationalized administrations in that sense will contain the virus, will contain the spread. We now, I think by now, have to keep in mind that this pandemic has came in the 21st century at the peak of highly globalized societies, interconnected. And part of the story of the spread of the virus was the story of ourselves, of our cosmopolitan selves. And by that, I don't mean only some expats and people who are traveling around the world, but I mean also goods and workforce that uh, travels around the world. And we are so much interconnected that each crisis very easily becomes a pandemic crisis. Just a short reminder, to those who are still keeping in their minds the financial crisis, the financial crisis has become a global crisis precisely because of this global interconnection and cosmopolitanism. So once again, in the pandemic, we are dealing with a very highly interconnected society. And yet 
we try to think that we might solve this law. However, to sort of um, not only criticize these states, it's rather understandable that they have uh, touched first upon these local and national instruments. Because these transnational instruments, as fancy as they might seem, are also highly complex and complicated. Why? Because each institutional practice, if you will, is composed of, on the one hand, data and evidence and knowledge that we have, and on the other hand, the cultural habitus and all around which makes people comply with that knowledge or understand that knowledge and act as the knowledge says. And within that, or uh, keeping that in mind, we, we sort of understand the different institutional tools that have been put in place, for example, inside the European Union. So although we recognize that European Union is a quite handy framework to govern and regulate the pandemic transnationally, at the same time, we need to recognize that inside the European Union, we have different cultural practices and with that different compliances with institutional rules. So in a way, the difference and handling the pandemic can be explained also across these cultural differences, if you will. It's a, a little bit of banalization, but let's take the cultural differences, something which might easily visualize for us that people are different and differently understand the rules that are taken upon us. With that in mind, I think I can make one example that has been cited many times at the beginning of the pandemic, which was that At first sight, the CE countries seem to be very uh, well off with the pandemic. Why? Because uh, we were told that Czechs, Slovaks and Polish people are much uh, better in complying with strict institutional regulations. They know what starving is about. They know that everything is not golden. And then they can even take very authoritative orders. And indeed, it seemed that Czech Republic, for example, was doing very, very well. However, in the long term, and now we are within the second or even third year of the pandemic, so we are speaking in the long term perspective, we see that these authoritative and very strict rules cannot hold for such a long time. And this has created pushbacks, pushbacks that people just don't want to comply with these rules anymore because they are too strict. And with the time being, they become absurd And then we see that countries that at the beginning were maybe a little bit more relaxed are now better off because they have not produced this pushback. But I do not want to evaluate like who is where, because I would like to stop a little bit at this race. And you uh, personally said at the beginning that there was a competition among the states and the competition is still there. We report the number of cases, we report the number of tests, we report the number of vaccinated people. And in a way, it's been a horse race. And I think we can, on the one hand, blame the usual suspects, like the media that took the chance and made it to a yet another horse race. Even the global pandemic, the global suffering and dying all, over, all around the world is good enough to make it a yet another horse race. But we could also blame it on ourselves that we cannot really look away from reports on this horse race, that we still are in this competition rather than a cooperation, that we are still trying to find holes between these differences rather than sort of hold together. So, for example, we go for a vacation there where there are not so many regulations. So you see what I mean? I think it's a highly complex problem 
but it shows on the one hand the difficulty of making transnational policy instruments work and of the, at the same time it shows also this risk of highly individualized societies trying to solve something together what consequences will this health crisis this pandemic crisis uh, have when it comes to this competition amongst the nation states on the perception of citizens towards uh, these transnational institutions such as eu institutions do you think it will strengthen the different rather skeptical opinions on on these will it strengthen the polarization across the societies maybe even deepen the divisions of opinions on, on these but also divisions amongst the different regions amongst the different narratives about europe as as we all know you know this west east divide uh, north south divide eu non eu what would be your take on this okay i might start maybe somewhere a little bit else but i'll get back straight uh, to your questions uh, question afterwards so i'd like to say that there is one important concept in uh, political sociology that we might use now which is called policy learning so how we learn from each other and policy learning is quite a common thing in political actions it can be learning from a different policy field so learning from a past crisis but it can be also learning from a different country however such learning is um once again embedded in cultural aspects and economic aspects social aspects so when we try to learn something from a policy we need to contextualize what this policy really represents and um it goes without saying that taking one policy from one country and putting it into another is not what a good policy learning should be rather it should be a very meticulous work on contexts and on relations that are created and recreated once we place that policy in a different country what do i have uh, in mind with that we've seen that there were policy instruments put in place such as lockdowns vaccination mandates and then other countries have looked after that okay should we do that and this look into the other country i think has been something very powerful in the european union and we tend to forget that it was um, at the end of the day quite well organized we still have the green pass we might have difficulties sometimes because in some countries people that have recovered from the virus can be vaccinated only once and some twice but still we have a tool in place which we which with which you can travel we have also regulations for people who are crossing the borders in each of the european countries you have some some exception for these people this once again although it is highly complicated and diversified and you always need to look what comply what what is the rule that is now in place at the same time we need to acknowledge that european union has managed to make all the states at once to understand that borders are not a functional instrument in this pandemic because borders do not exist inside the european union so while at the beginning there was this highlight of borders and they were closed they have managed together to put in place uh regulation of people who are traveling for work or even family across the borders of nation states 
I think that let's be sober. And this is a quite an achievement within two years that we can still travel with one application, if you will, with the green bus all around the European Union in these 27 states. Okay, but there are things that could be better. What are these things? In my view, it is this missed opportunity to do really a policy learning, which means to contextualize really what's going on in the pandemic and why people are complying with some rules in some country while they're not complying with the other. So learning from each other has been um, not without problems or had holes in there. And I think that one of the most important discussions uh, in the past months has been the discussion about the vaccination and whether vaccination mandates and obligatory vaccination will lead us somewhere. I think it's a crucial question. And especially in Australia, it has been one of the main political issues in the past weeks. But once again, we uh, are so much focused on the vaccination rate and on the horse race that we tend to forget um, the long-term effect of rules such as vaccination mandates that are a very radical rules. And you can say it's a radical rule, even though you might think it's a good rule. It's a radical policy instrument to make people vaccinate themselves, whether they want it or not, to make them inject something in their bodies. In times where we preach so much individualization and so much the bodily integrity, we need to take into account that such a law is a radical political instrument. The way the law has been debated in Austria and elsewhere has shown that we still have some capacity to improve that policy learning. So, for example, to look at these countries such as Italy, Spain and France more closely and to look at why is it that people in France are not so much vaccination hesitant? What is going on there? They still read the same science and, you know, there might be some different cultural, economic, and social reasons how the campaign has been done. But not only the COVID-19 campaign, but maybe the medical campaigns altogether. Because, for example, if you look at France and the compliance of French citizens with medical regulations in general, you see a very big difference between France and the German-speaking countries. Because we talk here about Austria and its law about the vaccination mandates, but Swiss and German citizens have approximately the similar rates of vaccination hesitancy, if you will. So there would be an opportunity to look farther than the pandemic and see, like, why do people believe medical institutions more in some countries? You know, to enlarge in order to do the good policy learning, and that would be, I guess, my answer to this, we need to enlarge the scope of what are we looking at. We need to include culture in a broader term, so how people in general look after their bodily integrity, how people in general trust the state institutions, and we need to take into account history. And this has not happened that much. Although research in political sociology on expertise, I would argue, shows that the embedding in culture and in history is crucial to make this work. Although we think that institutions are defined through knowledge and evidence, and we love to talk about evidence-based politics, we forget that this evidence has been always embedded in cultural and historical narratives that have been mobilized, that have been touched upon, and that need to be taken into account to fully understand what a policy instrument or a policy tool or a law will mean for the society. Thank you very much for this highly interesting talk today. I would have just one uh, small request on you. The second season of our CE podcast series 
has uh, also one special element. We are asking our guests to recommend us a piece of art, music, literature, which they associate with the discussed topic. So my question would be, uh, what do you associate with the with this complex issue we just discussed? It can be also something you would connect to your personal experience during the pandemic. Uh I make a prelude to my answer. So there has been a book which has been echoed within the pandemic. And I think that it still makes a sense. And this is the book by Albert Camus, The Plague. However, I would argue that the reasons for which The Plague was referenced for me are ultimately false. What I read in a Camus story is a story which I think is a purely human story. And I think that this story should not be forgotten in times as these, is that the acceptance of failure, that you wanted to achieve something and it's just not possible, is something which is very human and very important for humanity. So at the end of the day, at the end of your life, you recognize that although you have tried to do something, you just did not succeed. And yet our history is full of these successful narratives, people that have achieved something. And in my view, the story of the plague and the story of the main character, Dr. Vieux, is a story of someone who's been trying to fight this plague in his city and he fails. But the way he fails, the way he faces this failure is very human and I think very important for our days. Because within these past months, there have been many failures with each of us on the state level, on the individual level. I think that even more importantly than trying to, you know, enumerate the successes we had despite the pandemic, I think we should comfort ourselves in returning to this very human ability of us to recognize yes there have been things that did not go well and yet we are standing here we're we're alive we look ahead our kids go to school we continue our life and this is an achievement an important one because it gives us humans a strength that we are able to accept our failure thank you very much once again for this overwhelming i would say uh talk uh today uh i think we have now even more thoughts than we had before we started our discussion i hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as i did and um thank you for your time and all the best thank you very much thank you for inviting me and uh, yeah have a great time and just don't uh be scared about your failures <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much So you enjoy this podcast? Then tune into another CEE episode and subscribe to the IDM podcast series on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Acast, or elsewhere you get your podcast. And also have a look at the rest of our work on our website www.idm.at for any feedback or podcast collaboration feel free to contact me at e.honsuberry at idm.at. The email is in the description below. 
This was CEE, Central Europe Explained, a podcast series produced by the Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe, powered by Erstegroup, with the ongoing participation of Daniela Peiden, Marvin Atalik, Daniel Martinek and Sebastian Schaeffer. Production and editing, Emma Hunterberry. Proofreading, Jack Gill. IDM Podcast. Institut für den Donauraum und Mitteleuropa. Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe. European Perspectives. Regional Actions. Cooperation and Expertise since 1953.